You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Um, I'm not using a mic this morning because I, or this afternoon, because the sound system is a bit finicky with the mic right now, so I will try to project as best as possible. Um, a caveat, I, I like never do this, okay? I, I, there's something integrous I, I feel like about me that doesn't allow me to do this, but um, the past two weeks have been a little bit hectic in our home, and uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, a little hectic, and so um, I had already been planning on preaching last week on war and violence in the Old Testament, and I've been planning on preaching on hell and judgment, and today I'm still planning on doing that, but I'm just going to tell you as a disclaimer, a lot of the stuff I'm going to be talking about this afternoon uh, is actually from uh, Joshua Ryan Butler's book, um, Skeletons in God's Closet. Um, And so uh, much of the material is not original to me. Actually, nothing I ever say from here is original to me. Okay, so let's just keep it out there. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a lot of original content. Um, but I also don't typically pull from uh, a resource. But it is, I think, one of the most profound resources on some of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Um, and so I'm giving that. I'm giving him his props. He did all the re- a lot of research here. So uh, having said that, we will get started. Uh, and we're going to pray, actually, at the end. We usually have our prayer time. Now we're going to pray at the end. <clears throat> so I want to give you uh, three pictures, okay? There are um, two high school sweethearts who met at a dance in 2001. Their names were Serhi and Tetiana. Over the next 20 years, they would have two kids who, in March, this March, were 18 and 9 years old. And it was in the month of March that Russia would invade Ukraine, Serhi had gone to take care of his ailing mother, and so he left, uh, left Tetiana with the kids. And it wasn't long before the bombs started hitting their neighborhood, and so Tetiana and her kids evacuated their building, hoping to make it to a very important bridge. And they did not. They were all killed on a Sunday morning, along with a local church volunteer who was actually helping them evacuate. Namely, namely because... A violent dictator will do anything to expand his empire's power. That's picture one. Picture two. Between April 7th and July 15th, 1994, there was something known as the Rwandan Civil War. During this period of 100 days, that is roughly three months, members of the Tutsi ethnic minority group were killed by armed Hutu militias. The death count was over 500,000 people. Gangs would search villages, ransack houses, abuse women, and bring rifles and machetes to torch the town. Presidents were assassinated and anarchy reigned. Half a million people in three months died. And picture number three is my senior year of high school. I'm in Thailand. Specifically, I'm in the city of Chiang Mai. I was there for a 10-day short-term mission trip, and to be honest, I was a pretty sheltered kid growing up. I did not experience a lot of death or darkness in the world. But on that last day in Thailand, I got a peek behind the curtain. Before we walked around the town square that night, the Thai church leader sat us down and said, let me tell you about the red light district. 
The words sex trafficking had never entered my mind. The fact that police were in on it and young women were brutalized to the point of unrecognizability was impossible to stomach. How, how could girls be sold into this? And how could those who sought to serve and protect actually be perpetrators? And how was this a global billion-dollar industry, and how was I standing in one of its headquarters? Still, to this day, I can hear the woman say to this team of wide-eyed high school kids and adult leaders, I don't know you all, but after spending a week with you, I get the picture. Most of you have not stared evil in the face. A bombing in Ukraine, a genocide in Rwanda, trafficked victims in Chiang Mai. Do you have a problem with evil? That is the question. Do we have a problem with evil or do we tolerate it? Resigned to it, perhaps somewhat apathetic to a dark world. It just feels hopeless, right? Since Genesis 3, it went from apple to homicide To five chapters later, the earth is filled with violence. And so God literally sends a flood. And see, we're mortified by stories like that. And our initial response is, well, the world needs judgment. And of course, we think that about the world. And we think about ourselves that we need mercy, not judgment. In the early 1900s, G.K. Chesterton was invited by a London paper to submit an essay replying to this question, what is wrong with the world? His response was a simple four-word essay. Dear sirs, I am. It is easy to paint the world into good guys and bad guys, into saviors and monsters, victims and villains. Why has Marvel become a global phenomenon? Because at the core of the story, there is something we inherently crave. The good guys and the good gals beat the bad ones. But the world is not a cinematic movie. It is much less like evil masterminds planted everywhere, plotting evil schemes, and much more like Holocaust survivors stepping into post-war courtrooms, expecting to find Nazi soldiers dressed with horns on their head and shocked. To discover there is a next door neighbor disposition to them. As one author put it, it's because these people are not the other. They are us under extraordinary conditions. No one would debate you that there is a problem in the world. (laughs) Most people would debate what the remedy to the problem is. And almost everyone would find themselves outside of the problem. We're in this series titled It Is Written on the Scriptures. And last week we talked about a difficult concept of stomach, violence in the Old Testament. And today we talk about the other side of that coin, which is the theme of hell and judgment. Now, like I said last week, there are so many caricatures around what we think of when we think of judgment And what you might know, or maybe you don't know, is that most of our imagination, our modern imagination of hell, does not necessarily stem from the scriptures, but from the epic poem, Divine Comedy, where we get the image of Dante's Inferno. 
The Inferno describes Dante's journey through hell, which are these nine concentric circles of torment located under the earth. And it is allegorical in nature, but I would venture to guess that many Christians do not take their cues of judgment from the scriptures, but from a 14th century Italian poet whose work is known around the world. But for followers of Jesus, we take our cues from the Spirit of God as revealed in the Bible. And so we dive into the biblical theology of judgment in hell in two phases. The place of hell and the mercy of hell. Evil is not an object in and of itself. It is a distortion of something. Greed is not something. It is a distortion of our relationship to money. Lust is not something. It is the objectification of the image of God. Gluttony is not something. It has a relationship to food and drink gone awry. Envy is not something. It is our contentment gone completely out of whack. Oppression is not an object God created. It is our distorted relationship with power and authority. God creates good things so that his world will thrive. And sin comes in and disrupts and distorts those good things and makes them ultimate things. God created the world and he called it very good. And while there are many different streams of how and to what extent evil kind of entered into the world, it made its entrance. It brought hell with it, which is just the destructive power of darkness and suffering ending ultimately in death. Now, there are references over references in the scriptures pairing up heaven and earth. There are zero references pairing up heaven and hell. But we constantly frame it as heaven is up here and hell is down here. That is the character. That is how we think of it. We have this idea of yin and yang, heaven and hell. But the reality is God created the heavens and the earth on the first page of Scripture. And on the last page of Scripture, we saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the first and last images of the Bible are not our caricature of heaven and hell, but of God's creation, the heavens, the galaxies, the skies, the universe, and the earth, God's good and created order. And so that feeds into the storyline of Scripture, which is about an embodied faith, not a disembodied one. It is the storyline where we see the beauty of God in the image bearers of God. And we see evil in the world and the objectification of the image bearers. All sin, all evil at its core is an idolatrous worship of something over and above God. And the cost of sin is always an objectification of God's most valued possession, us. Pornography is the worship of sexual pleasure at the cost of an image bearer. Racism is the degrading of someone with a different ethnicity and the cost is an image bearer. Greed is the worship of accumulation and the cost is an image bearer. Each instance of idolatry, which is merely meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, bears the cost of an image bearer. We have a word for that, actually. It is called injustice. So when I look at 10 p.m. at night in the quiet of my bedroom, 
on my phone, someone gets objectified and therein lies injustice. And when I make a passing remark or a crude joke along socioeconomic lines, someone gets objectified and there is immediately an injustice. And when I cave to the God of consumerism and materialism, there is injustice happening. It is not always so visible in our deeply vast and interconnected but global world, but it is there. So hell is where idolatry and injustice collide. The preference of something over Jesus and the cost is someone who God created and came for. So our question is, what happens to all the injustice? What happens to all the distortions of God's good and created world? Is there hope that pornography and racism and greed get kicked out of earth? Well, there are a couple images of hell in the Bible, but the two predominant frames that we see are found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word is Sheol. Shows up more than 60 times. And Sheol was, a, was the equivalent to the grave. It was not thought to be a place of conscious torture, nor was it thought to be a place where you were released into immortal happiness. All right? It was simply death. It was where the kings and the servants went, where tyrants and toddlers went. Over and again, you will read a reference to Sheol as a place of the pit, darkness, the land of forgetfulness, that people that refer to it are filled with grief, grief and are near death, either physically or emotionally. So death, is the return to the ground from which we came. That's where we get this idea of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is Sheol. But there's a shift that happens in the New Testament, and that shift is resurrection. Jesus defeats our mortal enemy, which is death. He is the first fruit, meaning when spring comes around in 2023 and you see the first bloom, it is not just that the first bloom that encompasses spring, but that an entire garden is coming. This is resurrection. Death no longer holds us. If the gospel can be summarized in one sentence, it is that life has defeated death. It is the death of death. Jesus is victorious over the grave. And it is in light of Jesus' resurrection that we have to inspect ourselves. Where do we stand with respect to the one who was raised? And so it's this pivot point, resurrection, that we move to the New Testament's concept of hell. And the word in Greek for hell is Gehenna. And the question we naturally ask ourselves is, what is Gehenna? But the better question is actually, where is it? Because Gehenna was an actual place, a location you could plot on the map. It was just outside the Jerusalem walls. So when we think of hell, we think of a place underground, somewhere deep in the black hole in the center of the earth. But when Jesus talks about Gehenna, he is talking about the backyard of Jerusalem. And while the Greek translates hell into Gehenna, in Hebrew, it's translated the Valley of Hinnom. And let me paint a picture of the Valley of Hinnom. One of the key references to the valley is in 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz is king in Israel. He leads Israel to begin adopting the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. And it says this. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. 
He even made metal images for Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hanam, and burned his sons as offerings, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. The reason Israel goes into exile is because they joined the pagan practice of child sacrifice. And I think for the majority of Western thinkers, we think, wow, how ridiculous that you would sacrifice your child to a statue and think that's going to work. But the ancient people of Canaan and the surrounding nations were not so dumb that they thought that standing in front of an idol would give them what they want. They actually gathered around the figurine of a bull and it rained. And it had not rained in a long time. And so they thought, okay, we have found the trick. Placate the bull, worship it again. And so in biblical theology, in the story of God, there is a demonic force behind a physical idol. Something else is happening behind just people blindly sacrificing children. They are worshiping something because they are getting something. But as Andy Crouch says, what happens with all kinds of idolatry is the thing that starts out working begins working less and less, but it demands asking more and more of you. Therefore, the thing that started out promising everything and asking practically nothing begins demanding everything and delivering nothing. And I feel like that is potentially the greatest definition of social media ever given. But this is true for, it's actually true for human history. I want you to consider something. What is the maximum thing a false god would ask you to give up? Most people would think your life. But no, it is your son's life. It is your child's life. Every false god says that if you really want my benefits, give me the thing that you cannot fathom being without What will cost you the most? It is your child. And it was that way in the Old Testament and the people of Israel. And it is that way now. So not only is the Valley of Hinnom the place of idol worship, it is the place of grave injustice where the most vulnerable people get placed in the belly of a fire. This is the description of hell. And we think of hell as underground, which is how our Western minds have been taught to conceptualize it. We remove the relationship between what is happening inside the city and what is happening outside of it. So in the book of Zechariah, we read this. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within So like a father protecting his kids, God's very presence is the fire that protects the city from the outside forces of evil and injustice, from violence and from greed, from genocide and from racism, from porn and from sex trafficking, from the things that happen in secret and the things that are blown up on mass media, from personal evil and systemic kind. Sin must be cast outside of the city walls because it cannot coexist with God's presence and peace in the world. See, what had happened was the sin of child sacrifice wanted back inside the city gates. The idolatrous affair 
that started in the valley with Israel wanted to make its way into the temple. And it did. If you read 2 Chronicles 33, you see that there was a king named Manasseh. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he set up the idols in the temple of God. And the text says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The power of hell wants to destroy the city of God. It is not content to keep to itself. It is an invader. And God kicks hell out of the city, not because God is a vicious tyrant, but precisely the opposite. Because he is a kind father who stands in opposition to the wicked ways of evil. God's holy city is being liberated. And God is restoring the original relationship between heaven and earth. Which is why upon Jesus getting resurrected, it says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And God's reason for giving Jesus this authority is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, which is Jesus. And if you notice the direction in Revelation, God is bringing heaven down to earth. He is not bringing us up into heaven. His goal is to heal the rupture, to wrap the wound, to bring peace where there has been separation. And the way he does it is to remove hell and its minions outside the city gates so as to provide reconciliation between heaven and earth. The place of hell is outside of the kingdom. And the mercy of hell. See, the overwhelming caricature of hell is that God lights a fire in which people get tortured in a chamber forever. God creates hell as a torture chamber. That is the caricature. But in the biblical story, the story of the Bible, the story that we find ourselves in, we are the ones that light the match. God does not abuse and neglect children. We do. God does not murder his neighbors. We do. God is not responsible for the exploitation of women. We are. And one of the main verses where we get the idea that hell is a red-hot torture chamber, constantly burning people up, is in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I am much less concerned with the literal fire piece and much more interested in some other aspects of this story. So I'm going to read a few verses here. This is the teaching text, but it came in the middle of the sermon, so I thought I'd just read it because I want to show some things to you. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will also not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, there's a bounty of observations that we can make about the story, but let's just highlight a few. 
What is the rich man's name? You don't know it. We don't know anything about the rich man, except that he was rich. What is the beggar's name? Lazarus. This is, by the way, the kingdom inverted in one name plate. Everything about our world in the ancient Near Eastern culture world says, you know, the millionaires and the kings and the power players, you know, the ones that earn a lot, have a lot and do a lot. This is the story of the world. A rich man ate like a king every day. A poor man sat at his gate and dogs took pity on him every day. Everyone knows the name of the millionaire. No one knows the name of the poor. But in the kingdom, Lazarus gets a name. It is the only parable where Jesus gives someone a name. Jesus tells all sorts of stories about farmers, shepherds, workers, but he never tells one about Rick or John or Lazarus till now. And what does a name do? It humanizes someone. They are not a demographic or a stat or even a people group. They are a person, someone made in the image of the invisible God. It's a subtle detail, but it's a major one. Because Jesus is punctuating a point to those who count themselves as spiritual. I know the names. Lazarus' name literally means God has helped. And the details we know about Lazarus and the rich man are bound up in their economic standing. That's all we have in the story, and it's not a lot. And there's actually one blurb here that I missed when I copied this text over. Here's what the blurb says. Lazarus, the rich man is um, in hell in this, this great chasm. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send me Lazarus to fetch me water. The translation of that text is, can we go back to the old way where I was on top of the social ladder and Lazarus was on the bottom? I am not interested in being part of the kingdom, but I am still interested in what was happening before. This, by the way, is not a merciful plea for God's generous grace. This is a self-interested ploy for maintaining the status quo. It is a refusal to acknowledge the great reversal that happens in the kingdom, that the humble get exalted and the exalted get humbled. And if you notice heaven's response, they, they call him child. They do not say, you fool, you idiot. <laughs> they do not say, are you kidding me? No, it's still a fatherly disposition. They call this rich man by his original identity, child. And yet, they do not address his riches because what is tormenting him is the loss of an idol that he refused to give up. Torture comes from the outside. Someone hitting you in the head over and over again with a two-by-four. Torment comes from the inside, a headache. In both instances, your head is pounding. But one is your choice, the other is not. Hell is torment, not torture. 
It is the self-made choice to not accept the healing hand of God. It is the love of things that so quickly enslave us and yet promise to deliver us. Tim Keller says, Hell is the trajectory of the soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever and ever. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. And then there's a, described a great chasm between Lazarus and the rich man. And the chasm is about protection. No longer will Lazarus be bullied and exploited by the rich man. No longer will there be abusive homes where children are displaced. No longer will there be domestic violence where families are more dangerous than they are safe. No longer will superpowers exploit developing countries. No longer will cheap drugs promise an escape that leads to a funnel of addiction. The boundary of hell is mercy. God's good and renewed world gets protected from being overrun by a wasteland. It is protection from the tyranny of the world. Jerusalem is Israel's capital. It is the center of national life. And it's pronounced like this, Yeru Shalom. In Hebrew, Shalom is the peace and flourishing of God. Shalom is what happens when God and his creation and his humanity are all in right relationship. And if we are, in, if we are under the curse east of Eden, Jerusalem was supposed to be the antithesis to that curse. Because the temple sat at the center of the city. God's presence would fill the land. And each time someone said, Yeru Shalom, it was a reminder to everyone within earshot that God's reign was to stand at the center of their life. So to ask God to redeem Yeru Shalom, but not cast sin outside the city gates, is like asking a physician to heal you from the disease without taking out the tumor. It is a contradiction. You have to extract what is causing pain. And you have to protect against it wreaking havoc on you again. The mercy of hell is that God's enemies are never allowed in. Lust, rage, greed, no longer invading the kingdom. Objectification of other people is not allowed in. Violence on the weak is not allowed in. Lack of self-control and unrestrained impatience are not allowed in. So the question for us is the same question that Jesus asked the man in John 5. Will you let me heal you? Here is what must be realized. It is not as if we are reaching out to God and he is refusing to open his arms. It is that he is embracing us and we are refusing to be embraced. We have a select few identities that we are unwilling to let go of. Psychology calls them attachments. Calvin calls them idols. The Bible calls them sin. And the last thing I want to show you is this. The rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Why five brothers? Well, because Jesus is the master storyteller. Judah 
which is where Jerusalem is the capital city once the United Kingdom of Israel gets divided. In the Old Testament, Judah has five brothers. And Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees who are studied Jewish scribes, so they probably have an idea of what's going on. The rich man with five brothers is a picture of Judah's kingdom with all its wealth and glory. And if the rich man is Jerusalem, then Lazarus is outside the city gate of the rich man. He constitutes the poor, which would have been cast outside the city gates. The people, by the way, who Jesus spent most of his time with. And the dogs who licked the sores of Lazarus would have been the Gentiles. Because Gentiles and dogs are synonymous in the New Testament. That is what Jews called them. And Jesus is implying that the outsiders show more compassion for the hurting than the insiders do. It is not a far stretch to say what Jesus is paralleling here is the destruction of Israel that is coming in 40 years. The temple would be burned down. Jerusalem will be nothing more than rubble left by the Romans as a pile of ash. And Jesus is saying that outsiders like Lazarus are about to be embraced into the kingdom and Jerusalem is about to be judged. And when a city was destroyed, a common Hebrew image was the city went to Hades or Sheol, the grave. And in another famous saying by one of Jesus' most inner circle guys, Peter says in 1 Peter, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We long for the world to be crucified. This is where judgment begins. Lest we think hell is something for those out there, we would be badly mistaken. From Israel to the early church and beyond, repentance is the way to life. Now, I'm not sure of everyone's background in the room, but for the majority of us, even if we grew up in some of the most religiously ardent circles, the idea of judgment is still a little unsettling. But that is because I believe most of us, not all of us, but most of us, have grown up in situations and circumstances that are ideal. But ideal circumstances do not mark the majority of the world. Live as a follower of Jesus in an underground church in Beijing. Live as a follower of the way on the war-torn streets of Kiev right now. Live as followers of Jesus in this country in the 1900s and before as an African-American. Live as a follower of Jesus in this country as someone who has been brutalized at the hands of family members and not received an ounce of justice. Live as a follower of Jesus while constantly dealing with and staring evil in the face. Follow Jesus with fervor in Libya and realize your literal head could likely be executed. So Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who writes this. My thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. 
Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered and burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been assaulted, whose fathers and brothers have been beheaded. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-judgmental love. Soon you should discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human violence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the thesis will invariably die. In other words, it is typically those of us who sit in the nice confines of our home, not having to deal with the ugliness of the world day in and day out, who think, I'm not so sure about a God who judges. The idea of a God who judges feels deeply discomforting to people who live comfortable lives. See the rich man in the story. But for the majority of the world, the outcry for judgment by followers of Jesus is the only hope they have. Either God will perfectly judge the world, or we live in a survival of the fittest, last man standing battle where those with the most toys win. To stand in the middle of a war-torn world, to look in the face of battered victims, and to think that there will be no judgment is the most depressing reality. And so for us, we join in with the global church in bringing the raw, honest desire for justice and judgment to God, which helps remove it from our own hands. Entrusting perfect vengeance to God's hands means it can be taken out of ours. And that might be our greatest struggle. The ground for non-violent, non-vengeful, not seeking revenge, even otherworldly forgiveness is rooted in the fact that we believe there is a judge who is inherently good, who also happens to be father. I was talking with a judge actually a couple years ago. He's um, an elder at Fellowship Middlebrook. And I asked him, how? How can you do your job when you know that what you are doing is inadequate because you have to go on facts, not feelings? When you have a gut and your gut is telling you one way and the law is telling you another, what do you do? And his response was literally, I pray on the bench and I realize there is another bench. I said that he was a better man than I was. There's a lot of different views on hell. Um, from some of the most scholarly and studied people, and they are very different. Uh, Some believe in eternal conscious torment. Some believe in annihilationalism. Some believe in a combination of the two. I don't think, I actually, I think that there is a lot of 
good work that has been done in academics on this topic. But I think for the majority of us, the point is not to solve the mystery of hell as it relates to what it's actually going to be like. I believe the imagery and the connotation that we get in the New Testament is to cement our hope in the perfect judge. So, judgment is real. Don't be a moral relativist. God is the standard for holiness of which we will never live up to, and yet there is a standard. And there is salvation and healing because there is a way in which God created the world and called it good, and we have distorted the world and made a mockery of it. So, good news, God will not be mocked. If we don't hold tightly and firmly to the fact that God is judged, do we have any ground to stand on to call sin, sin, and evil, evil? To be a church set apart is to be a church that takes Jesus so seriously. The number one thing he talks about is judgment. And that is relatively unpopular. But I would love to be a church that is accused of taking Jesus too seriously. We believe and follow Jesus so much and so deeply that we can't help but get over the fact that there is evil in the world. But because judgment is real, let's be a people of otherworldly compassion. I know folks personally who have been greatly burned by the church because we speak of hell in this like cavalier, nonchalant way, especially, especially regarding people who are no longer living. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is not the shame of the church or the guilt trip of the church or the scare tactics of the church that leads people to repentance. It is the fact that God is so good that he will judge the world for all its evil and yet so gracious that he took judgment upon himself that whoever would take up his cross, he would pardon. That is the scandal. It's a wonder that he would let anyone inside the city gates. It is a jaw-dropping miracle that God would protect any of his own by the fire of his presence. And yet he says he will, whoever will come. Mr. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world? I am. For Serhi in Ukraine, for those victims in brothels, for the things that live inside of us that we cannot shake. We have only the promise of God in the flesh who removed death's grip on us, redeemed our world, and is casting evil out of his world forever. And so we wait and we long and we pray and we join in on pushing back the darkness and embracing the light as we are embraced by the light. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are king, ruler, authority. All power and dominion is yours. And so here we are just acknowledging that. We long for your day to come and for you to upend all the wrong that is done in the world and set the world right side up. And so come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. 
We do not long for this day enough. Please, please set the world right side up. And we are not immune from that. It starts right here in this small collection of Jesus followers. Help us. Help us be people who by the Holy Spirit's power recognize the evil within us, the selfishness within us, the sickness within us, and help us to offer the world the same thing you have offered us, grace. Living, tangible, active grace. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.